0: Welcome back to Monarchast. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And we're back. Yes, we are. It's been a while. It has been some time. But I think we always like to say, you know, we do put a lot of time and effort into these episodes and we have to give ourselves time to rest our brains and then start researching a whole new batch. And we took a, a long rest time this time. <laughs> actually, it wasn't it was just like a month and a half. Okay, yeah, but we missed so much. We did. We did miss a lot actually. It was a very busy month for the royals while we were gone. Yes. Well, the big news, I think, cuz I think this was announced after our last episode aired, but there is a baby on the way for Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, a Sussex baby, which I feel like isn't a surprise. Like No. You kind of knew they had to get on that pretty immediately. So if anybody is curious what they might be naming the baby, listen to our episode oh, yeah. on royal baby names because I feel as though they may be pulling from that pot of names. Yeah, I, I wonder like how... Because obviously they have a little more leeway, right? Like none of their kids are going to be heirs to the throne and potentially might not even be styled with royal titles. Well... Some type of royal title. But they they might not be like prince or princesses, right? But I don't know like how much leeway they're going to take with the names. You know, who knows? Because Princess Anne's kids have certainly gone off the beaten path with their kids' names. But again, she didn't give her kids titles. So right. they have a little more freedom. Harry is going to be probably in the next few years uh the son of the monarch so I don't know I think they're gonna stick pretty traditional they kind of implied that like I feel like there was something I read where they were like oh we were given like a list of names well that wouldn't surprise me (laughs) yeah I mean I think but I think you'll probably see when we talked about in our episode some of the names that maybe were being held for Harry we might see some of those so they announced this baby news at the start of their royal tour down to Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, and Tonga, and I joined them for the royal tour. <laughs> you personally? Me personally. No. Oh, I wish. Um, I was just coincidentally in Australia at the same time, which was super fun, obviously, from the standpoint of this podcast. Um, I didn't see them at all. I didn't see even any of the crowds really that had come out to see them. They, they think they landed like the day before I got there. And then obviously they were out and about doing Invictus things during the day and I was at work. And then I did end up going actually to Invictus, which was super amazing. Um, but they were in uh, Fiji the day that I went. Oh, bummer. I did take the ferry every morning past the house that they were staying at because it's, like, right on the harbor. And one morning I saw a bunch of people standing outside, but that was also the day they, like, went to New Zealand or something. And so I was like, oh, there's no chance (laughs) it's any of them. Um, But it was kind of fun and interesting to be there at the same time because, obviously, by all accounts, this was an incredibly successful tour. Yeah, was the media going crazy when you were there? Uh, I mean, like, I wasn't really watching or reading a lot of Australian media so I don't really know but from like the regular gossip media that I do read it was a big deal and it was interesting because like on one hand like everybody was like wow this tour and then regular people like at work were kind of like oh yeah that's happening like They were aware of it, obviously, but, like, playing it kind of cool, right? Like, nobody I work with was, like, lining up to meet them. So it was more of a success from the international stage. Yeah, and, I mean, it certainly was a PR coup for the royals because nobody made any really bad gaffes or said anything insensitive, which can sometimes happen with the older royals. You know, they did announce the baby, so that kind of gave them a bunch of goodwill. And then um, Invictus, you know the reason they were in Australia to begin with was, you know, I was really surprised by it. I went in and like the reason I went was like coincident, coincidentally, like my boss just planned like a work outing and we were going to go to the Invictus Games. And so we went to the wheelchair rugby and I was fully prepared for it to be this like hokey kind of like pretend like lifting up kind of thing of like, oh, look at all these like wounded people like playing sports. You know like there's a there's a potential for that to be kind of hokey and also kind of false and it wasn't at all like it was really inspiring and uplifting and the first game we saw was um, great britain versus france and france was terrible okay like great britain was like wiping the floor with them and then france finally scored and the whole place Like, you thought the roof was going to come down. Like, the place exploded. Like, it didn't matter what team they were on. Like, everybody was just rooting for everybody. And then Australia played New Zealand, and they have a really big rugby rivalry. Like, just generally speaking, professional rugby is, like, they're the big rivalry, right? So they really kind of embrace that spirit. And um, also the Australians kind of know the deal when you play New Zealand. And so they kind of know all the correct responses and things. So New Zealand did the haka, and I don't know if you know what that is, but it's this Maori tradition that they do before, like, sporting events sometimes, and it's this, like, basically posturing and kind of cheering and chanting that they do, and I put it on our Instagram because it was incredible. Like, you just have a bunch of, you know, obviously wounded men and women in wheelchairs performing the haka, and, like, I was like, I might cry. Like... it was really cool and you know everybody getting really into it and you know then throughout the city to see the flags everywhere they like put a flag on top of the harbor bridge and then you'd be in the subway station and they'd have like the ads playing and even when they were like on mute it was really hard to kind of not cry because I'm telling you it was like this so are you gonna cry right now? (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I'm i not. I If I talk more about it, maybe. But, it, you know, it really was this, like, very sincere effort, and I was thinking a lot about it in the context that we've talked about the modern royals, in that there's this idea that they're useless, right? Like, what is their purpose, really? But this was a very tangible thing that, in this case, Prince Harry has created, that I felt like it did seem to be making a difference in people's lives. Like, you had a bunch of school kids that were coming and, like, just really getting into it. Like, the athletes were really having a blast. I just thought it was, like, refreshingly, like, earnest and sincere and not at all what I thought it could be. Well, that sounds great. Yeah, so I know that was, like, rambly and long-winded, but I really was prepared to be cynical about it, and I came away impressed. Well, that's pretty cool. So good job, Prince Harry. (laughs) Well, speaking of Um, Harry and Meghan, I do have a piece of gossip. And this is probably going to make you a little angry to talk about. But I couldn't resist bringing Uh, this up. I think at this point, this is maybe a week old and maybe it's old gossip at this point, but it was really, I think, a fascinating example of the way all of these people relate to each other or also the way the women get talked about yes. in the press. all of those elements coming into play so the gist of the story is that there was a story in one of the English newspapers that Megan threw a fit over a tiara apparently she wanted an emerald tiara to wear for her wedding and the queen told her she gets what I give her and stop pitching a fit now, that's the summary of what went down. There's a couple different versions they- of this floating around out there. Like, there's a okay. version that... First of all, there's Harry and Meghan's version, which I believe was on uh, one of the documentaries that just aired. It may have been um, the one that went along with the... I think it's the one that goes with yes, the exhibition. With the exhibition of her wedding dress. So Harry and Meghan say that the Queen helped them pick out the tiara um Harry was there too and there were a few options and she tried on she tried them all on and the one she ended up wearing was the clear favorite and it was really surreal and sweet and that's the story that's been publicly put out there the story in this newspaper that ran it started with actually you have to go back to a profile that was done of Charles there's a new biography that's coming out and there's been some excerpts released and um one of the stories that came out was around the time of the wedding Harry apparently was very stressed out and screamed at one point what Megan wants what me- Megan gets and so then this tiara story is kind of the context for that quote and apparently she wanted this emerald tiara and was told no and the reason is because it was of questionable provenance and may have been Russian and so for whatever reason that would have prevented her from wearing this tiara on her wedding day and apparently Meghan was dead set on this tiara and um you know in a couple versions of the story it's either Meghan who threw a fit or it's Harry who threw a fit and the Queen had to step in and tell them both to calm down and You'll get what I give you. Stop showing your ass, basically. So, what I want to talk about is what I think probably actually happened, why this story is even out there, and, and what the what tiaras, <laughs> emerald yes, tiara, and what tiara we may be talking about here. <laughs> so, so let's start with the let's start with the tiaras. So, there's a couple. And I have to give credit here where credit's due. I did a little tiara research, and um, this I've mentioned this blog before, but this goes to the Royal Order of Sartorial Splendor. If you have any interest in crown jewels or tiaras, she's got a whole encyclopedia there, and it's, it's really fascinating. And she'll go into the... Do they have an update on the Swedish stuff? Mm, I haven't looked for that, but that's a good point. I'll have to look. So... Or Ocean's Nine, as I like to call it. We'll we'll get back to that. But for now, Emerald Tiaras. So the first option is, and if any of you out there saw what Princess Eugenie, which side note, we've been saying Eugenie. Apparently it is Eugenie. I know. um, I know I learned <laughs> that and I was like too late <laughs> she wore the greville kokoshnik tiara which was a beautiful Oh, because there was another wedding yes, there was another Let's, wedding well and that yeah. that plays into this as well which was a beautiful tiara with 15 emeralds on it and the one in the center is massive and it was gorgeous and it looked great with her dress and it it was just a beautiful tiara now this tiara is made, was made for the Honorable Mrs. Ronald Greville in 1919 and it was actually left to the Queen Mother in Mrs. Greville's will in 1942 and now until Eugenie wore it to her wedding it wasn't even confirmed that this tiara was part of the bequest so the provenance here is completely known it's not Russian but let's put a pin in this Eugenie part of it while we discuss what I think is the other option for which tiara well then why is it called the because the emeralds in tiara. it are kakoshnik emeralds oh, okay. and then the other is that something no, i mean don't know maybe to a jeweler mean, out okay. there it would mean something <laughs> but it's maybe they that's where they come yeah, from or it's, something it's yeah. mostly referred to as the greville emerald tiara but from this website that's how it was referred so that's what i'm going to say is the greville kakoshnik tiara the other tiara okay. that I think, was a potential contender is known as the Grand Duchess Vladimir Tiara. Now, this goes into the Russian part of the story. Um, Mm. This Tiara is named for Grand Duchess Maria Pavlovna of Russia, who was the aunt of Tsar Nicholas II, who you may remember was murdered um, in 1918. It's got these big it's huge okay let's everybody remember what Megan wore to her wedding and try to picture her wearing this instead it's got these huge interlocking diamond circles and then inside each circle hangs either a pearl or emerald pendant so you can either wear it with all pearls or all emeralds they're interchangeable and the story of this tiara is pretty cool it was hidden in Russia when the Grand Duchess fled in 1918 and later recovered by a family friend who actually worked for the British Intelligence Service. And he huh. smuggled it out in a plain bag. And then it was then later sold to Queen Mary in 1921. And she's the one who created the emerald option. So the emeralds wouldn't even be of Russian origin. And the provenance of this tiara is completely known. And it doesn't really have any scandalous russian origins it's also one of the queen's favorites and very unlikely that it would even have been an option for megan to wear yeah so those are the only two emerald tiaras that i could find that are out there now of course it's entirely possible that there's another tiara in the vault that has emeralds on it and we just don't know because it's not like they publish a catalog but here's the thing i do think that they have it, some kind of catalog of tiaras and i don't think that they handed megan the entire catalog and said here go shopping because if you look at this duchess yeah. vladimir tiara it it's a crown it's not a tiara it's a huge crown. yeah they weren't gonna let megan like no offense to megan commoner divorced American walk into that church wearing one of the biggest tiaras that happens to be a favorite of Queen Elizabeth that's just not gonna happen what's likely is that she was given a list of potential tiaras and told to pick one or she expressed a preference that hey as I'm designing my wedding dress I'm thinking I might like to wear something with emeralds do you have an emerald option? And they may have said, well, these are the only options and you can't wear them because, number one, you're not getting the Grand Duchess Vladimir tiara. And number two, Eugenie's already claimed the Emerald tiara for her yeah. wedding. Now, and I think either it's, she. remember, she's been engaged for months too and probably dreaming of which of granny's tiaras she's gonna wear for her entire life it's highly likely that the queen had already earmarked that for her it's also likely that they said to megan no you can't wear emeralds at all because eugenie is gonna wear emeralds and that's i mean let's look at it with all the hype around megan and harry's wedding that was like the one thing eugenie had going for her was that she is a blood granddaughter of the queen and gets first pick of the tiaras well and also like from what I'm understanding she was planning to get engaged earlier but they had to postpone it because Harry and Meghan got engaged and then or postpone announcing it and then she they also had to postpone their wedding as well. So she's already had to like cede her own wedding to her cousin. And so yeah, of course the queen was probably like, "Well, you get your choice of tiaras and obviously you're not going to wear it after Megan wore it. I think what happened, if of course I wasn't there, but I think it probably started with an expression of a preference for emeralds. And she was told, no, you can't wear emeralds because Eugenie is going to wear emeralds. And she may have pushed back on that or maybe Harry pushed back on that. Um, I think maybe the reason why the Russian piece of it came in is because if somebody hears emeralds and they think of which tiara has emeralds in it, um if this was reported before eugenie's wedding no one even knew that this gravel tiara was part of the collection so maybe they thought oh the grand duchess vladimir tiara they wouldn't want her to wear that this also happened around the time where those poisonings were happening in england so maybe they really didn't want a russian connection but i think a lot of that is probably garbled through the grapevine yeah i feel like the really like all of this sounds like insanely complicated for what probably was a simple like i like emeralds and there was a, well, there are no emerald like, options. And here we'll like, bring you some it. options. Like, yeah, because it seems crazy to, like, make up this whole story about the Russians when really the answer is, like, this is the queen's favorite tiara. You're not going to get that as an option. And the other one is already claimed by someone else. Like, I don't know. They all seem pretty understanding people. Like, I. I now the other thing, though, is, like, I was thinking... The fact that maybe she wanted an emerald tiara explains a little bit more the plainness yeah, of the dress. Yeah, that's true. So if the dress was designed with something in mind and then you find out you can't get it, that would be and stressful. I'm sure it's very stressful when you're planning your wedding. I think, like anything, this story, I think it's, so, it's too bizarre to have been made up. But completely anyway. I think there's some kernels of truth. I think that the public version that Harry and Meghan have presented is probably half of what happened you know maybe after she asked for this then yes the queen did bring them some tiaras and they all tried them on together and it was really surreal and that's the story that you're going to tell but I don't think anybody was pitching a fit I mean I certainly know if I was in her position the last thing I would do marrying into a family like this is throw a fit over a tiara that's not the hill I would want to die on. um no but who knows and you know I think a lot of it too is what we also want to talk about is you've seen a building up and a building up and a building up and this is the teardown the teardown the backlash has started which was inevitable which is is already, already gonna happen because here's a popular new person who from the view of a lot of really stuffy people is an interloper and getting really popular and that's why we're reading all the gossip articles about you know kate reasserting her role and like all this stuff and like it's all probably nonsense like these are not people that like they have a lot of other things to do than worry about like i don't know like whether like a popularity contest i i would hope I don't know. I mean, maybe these are really catty people. I don't know. But like we're starting to see all the stories that really come in and like compare Kate and Megan and like it's really becoming a battle of like they just want some sort of catfight, right? And it's starting to take on kind of a racist undertone in some corners of the internet and it's just really disheartening and disgusting. Well, to end this on a happy note, if you'd like to see the tiaras that we're talking about, (laughs) we're going to put pictures of them on our website and we'll also include a link to this blog because you can go down a shiny shiny rabbit hole but really I just wanted to talk about it because it had shiny jewelry and a little element of court intrigue it was the most bizarre gossip story that has come out like because there's all this stuff around Prince Charles like using his book to like you know kind of like assert his place in the royal order and then like out of that comes this like bizarre tiara story and it's like wait what <laughs> so and i don't know if it's coincidental that it's happening like right after the royal tour where harry and megan were like insanely popular and it's like somebody trying to puncture that balloon a little bit i think it's entirely likely Yeah. so that's the tiara gossip if anybody has any insight let us know or theories yeah. <laughs> we're gonna keep this one going all right do you have any other gossip No, I think that was it. I mean, like, like I said, there were some big things that happened in our little break. Like there was a royal wedding and a royal tour and a royal baby announcement. Also, I just was thinking about this, like the future King of England is 70 years old. Yeah, that's crazy. Like I was doing some research for a later episode that we're going to do this season and thinking about like how royal sons were like champing at the bit to like assert their own power and like getting really tired of waiting around for power and like William is like third in line <laughs> like, I don't think he's or second in line like, I don't think he's chomping at the bit like this this scenario that currently exists like tran- trying to think about transplanting that into some historical idea of like what it truly meant I was like I can't even see like these historical people like even putting up with this situation like it would never happen people just didn't live that long but like thank god they're doing they're living this long at a time where like their power is minimal because she would have been pushed down the stairs a long time ago seriously like it's just like i just had that moment when like you see all these headlines of like happy 70th birthday prince charles and it's like really stop and think about that like it's a long time it's a long yeah. time to wait i mean and he's got possibly years to go so fingers crossed yeah anyway now we're going to talk about the past yes so today we're going to talk about queen anne and she is going to be the first in a series of episodes that we're going to do on queens of england queens of england and wannabe queens of england yeah we're going to throw in a couple of consorts in there um, yeah. Some of the more interesting ones. But what we're talking about here is women in power. Yeah. And we've talked a little bit about Queen Anne. We before. have. We talked about the, a little bit about her in context of um, when we were talking about George of Hanover. Um, we talked, yeah, George of Hanover. And we were talking about the um, consorts of queens and their different titles because her husband did not take the title king. Mm -hmm. and we talked about her a little bit when we talked about um the glorious revolution and so she's she's come in a little bit but we thought we'd give her her own episode because her rule was pretty interesting and I think in one of those episodes I said that she only ruled for five years that's that's incorrect she was queen of England for five years but during her reign and we'll get to this you see what's called the acts of union and that was joining Scotland and England as formally joining them because remember they were joined under the crown of um King James the first when he took the throne of England but formally joined into Great Britain and she continued to rule after that and this is a great segue I think to start with this series Queen Anne being the segue because A lot of her rule is a direct result of Henry VIII absolutely so let's let's before we jump in I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in to the quick timeline here because um context is key and like I mentioned she only ruled for 12 years but she is worth exploring and I thought you said five no, I said I originally said five, but that's a mistake. Oh. She actually ruled okay. for 12 years. I said the first five years she was just Queen of England, but then they added Scotland and it became Great Britain. Oh. Yes. Um, it's somewhat surprising that she even made it to the throne given everything that occurred just before and during her lifetime. Quickly, quickly, I'm going to sketch her family tree. So if you remember, um, James I was the heir to Elizabeth I, and he was the first of the Stuart kings who came from Scotland. His line continues down a couple generations until you get to Charles the 1st. Now, Charles was Charles was Charles the 1st his son? Um, Either his son or his grandson, it's not very important to today's story. The only thing I've made myself memorize about Charles the 1st is he's the one who lost his head. Yes. So, he was deposed and there was a sp- span of years where England actually didn't have a king and it was ruled by a man named Oliver Cromwell. Then you have what's called the Restoration and we see Charles II be essentially invited back onto the throne because the period without a kingdom it was just it was just a little too messy so they decided we really do like to have a monarchy so Charles II took the throne. He did not have any legitimate heirs so his brother James the second who took the throne after him and Anne is his daughter so that's a quick family tree just to show you so Anne is part of the house of Stuart descended down from King James the first so let's start there let's just start with who she is she's born on February 6th 1665 at st. James's Palace in London Um, As I just mentioned she's the second daughter of the Duke of York later James II and Anne Hyde and we talked about her briefly when we talked about the commoners who had become queen Um, but she was a commoner and Anne's paternal uncle was the King Charles II. She and her sister Mary were the only children of James and Anne to survive to adulthood and as Charles had no legitimate children of his own and legitimate is important because he had several, several illegitimate children um, but his wife didn't have any children so he didn't have any legitimate heirs. Side note, actually, I read when William takes the throne he will be the first English king who is a descendant of Charles II in, like, a hundred years or two hundred years or something like that? Because his mother, Princess Diana, was descended from one of Charles II's illegitimate children. Fun fact. Interesting. Yeah, because we'll talk about issue... that more when we get to. T- will we will do Charles? Yeah, I think the other issue with Charles II is that he also might have been a secret Catholic. Isn't that right? Well, he did convert on his deathbed. Yeah, so they were also kind of like, let's really make sure we go with your securely Protestant nieces. Yes, well, and we'll get there. So, like I just said, he had no legitimate children of his own, and so he took an interest in their upbringing because they were the probable future heirs to his throne. So, like you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. the first and major issue was religion. So from the beginning the religious issues in England played a part in Anne's upbringing and cast a shadow over her entire life and reign. So if you remember Henry VIII divorced the church the Catholic Church and established the Church of England. Of course this wasn't a clean break and um, Catholicism was still deeply rooted in England. Mary took the throne tried to bring it all back then when Edward um, Elizabeth took the throne she undid all of that and the Protestants were in power again and on and on and on that continued so you get to the reign of Charles when this idea of Catholicism in England is scary and abhorrent and everyone lives in fear of the Catholics trying to take over the throne when in reality I think I read so I, I read a lot of this um, just so you know in this biography, called Queen Anne the politics of passion it was really good it was really long but they said it was something like one percent of the population in England at the time was actually practicing Catholicism so it was really a phantom threat but one that was driven significantly by propaganda so the public a scapegoat yes and the public and the parliament were very fearful that the Catholics would try to come back and take the throne so It was really important that Anne and Mary be brought up as Protestants. Um, by the time Anne was born it was pretty clear that her father James was leaning toward Catholicism and by the time she was a child he was openly practicing the Catholic faith Um, at the time it was forbidden for Catholics to hold public office and as a result of this James actually had to resign as Lord Admiral in 1773 so everyone knows that James is practicing the Catholic faith and has turned his back on the Church of England The idea that his children might be brought up as Catholic was completely abhorrent. So Charles took over their education, ensuring that they were brought up in the Anglican Church. And this was to satisfy Parliament, um, who said, well, if James is your heir, we can maybe deal with that, but his kids absolutely cannot be Catholic. Um, When their mother died and James remarried a Catholic princess, Mary Beatrice of Modena, it became even Modena, thank you, it became even more urgent because the last thing they wanted was a little Catholic prince waiting to pounce on the throne. And we will we will come back to that fear in a minute. Um, but regarding Anne's early life, uh, her actual education was pretty rudimentary, uh, which was typical for women at the time. Um, James the I apparently felt that women shouldn't be exposed to too much literature and scholarship um so it became pretty popular to basically keep the women as dumb as possible um but again like everything that's relative so anne was fluent in french she knew basic math which she was taught in order to keep track of household accounts upon her marriage um and which she was mostly she's tracking like accounts that's more than basic math she well she could add and subtract and if the numbers didn't add up she could figure out that they didn't add up she couldn't understand the complexities for example of the treasury or Mm -hmm. governmental expenditures she had a hard time with that later on but she she knew the basics Um, and she was taught mostly female pursuits like music dancing and drawing she could read and write and was an avid correspondent with her favorites Um, In fact, she would write multiple times a day and expect just as many responses in return, which put a lot of strain on her relationships. Is that favorite with a U? Yes, favorite. (laughs) And um, both Anne and her sister Mary were also really really principled in their morals so the court of Charles was notoriously morally corrupt for the time he was very into his mistresses and led by example Um, but the girls seemed to have reacted to this by developing strong moral principles and sticking to them so they weren't engaging in any of the more body behaviors of his court Anne was never a healthy child from the very beginning. I think it's kind of typical of children at this time and maybe royal children in general. Um, But she suffered some kind of mysterious eye condition. I've seen this described as a deflection and also watery eyes. So the book I was reading basically said it's not clear what this was. It could be anything from... A pain in the eye to actual watery eyes um but it was apparently severe enough that they sent her off to France for treatment when she was very young she first she's like those fluffy dogs that like have tears and in their faces (laughs) yes (laughs) they had to keep treating them with little masks yeah um So whatever it was, they felt like it needed to be treated. First, she lived with her grandmother in France, and then her grandmother died, so she moved into the household of her aunt, um, Henrietta, who was married to the French king's younger brother. Um, But then she died suddenly, so Anne returned home. It's not clear to me whether she was ever cured, and apparently um, some people did remark that she had quite a pronounced squint, so perhaps her eyesight wasn't very good. Maybe Um, she just had like really bad astigmatism or something. Yeah, I mean, all I know is this is bad enough that I just saw this mentioned in several different sources. So clearly it was a topic of conversation. Would explain the squinting. Perhaps. Maybe you should write your own theory on it. (laughs) But I have no idea. But it was severe enough that it's mentioned multiple times. Um, She also survived smallpox when she was a teenager. She contracted this. This is kind of a sad story was during the wedding preparations for mary who was being married off to william of orange so anne missed the entire wedding and she was so sick that she didn't even get to say goodbye to her sister because they couldn't delay the departure any longer so they kept telling her that mary was there and then when she finally got better they said oh no actually she's already in the netherlands Yeah, it's kind of sad. I mean, they were very close as children, as they would be. They shared their own household away from their parents, and they had friends that they shared. But, um, you know, as you can imagine, they were both in a very unique circumstance and probably leaned on each other. But at least as children, they were very, very close. That doesn't remain the same for later in her life. So then, just to round out the biographical details, Um, Once Mary was gone, it was Anne's turn to find a husband. And you'll find this interesting. There were rumors that she was going to marry George of Hanover. um, But, and that's the George of Hanover that ended up succeeding her to the throne. George I. Yes. Um, But in reality, this was never going to happen because his mother, Sophia of Hanover, was never going to support the match because Anne's mother had been a commoner. So Anne was not deemed to be good enough for him. Snob yeah i thought that was kind of interesting cuz these electors in hanover you know they're are they well, princes sophia of hanover was the one who was like directly in line for the throne after anne and it's interesting that she thought her own position was better than the woman who preceded her in line well to at the, the time throne. though Sophia was not in line for the throne. No, I know, but like eventually she was, but like Anne outranks her in this regard and yet somehow isn't good enough for her son. That's so weird. She's tainted because her mom was a commoner. Ugh. Yeah, kind of snobby. So eventually it was decided that Anne would marry Prince George of Denmark, who was the younger brother of King Christian V, And this was actually a really good match for her. The marriage was a very happy one. By all accounts, they really did fall in love with each other and they really cared about each other. And the marriage produced 17 pregnancies. Damn. That's a lot of them. So, um, you know, they clearly didn't hate each other. Um, Sadly, of these pregnancies, only five children were born alive. She had at least 12 stillbirths and several miscarriages. And only one of those lived past the age of four. Um, that would be her son William, the Duke of Gloucester, and he died at age eleven. It's not God. really clear what led to so many stillbirths. So as you can see, she was never very healthy. Um, there's been very various theories. Um, they don't think it was the um, the same as Anne. same as Anne Boleyn, where she couldn't. Um, Well, because she had a child. Well, she, and she, it wasn't that she just had miscarriages. She had children. She had several children after that, and then she would have stillbirths. Yeah. So um, they're not really sure what it was. Some of the theories are lupus or pelvic inflammatory disease, which I guess was very, very common at the time. Um, But she did suffer from gout later in life, and it wasn't normally gout will affect just one joint or one limb and it's always the same every time you have a episode Anne would get it all over her body and so apparently that's a symptom of lupus so some people think maybe she suffered from lupus and that was interfering with her regular health as well as her ability to carry a child to term. Um, She did do it a few times successfully but of course we're also dealing with this time in. History where right. two I of mean, her like, children were born very, very healthy and then they died of smallpox. So, yeah. Like, it's entirely possible in modern times she would have had five yes. living children. So, so all of this brings yeah. us to the question of the succession, however. So, <sighs> Charles died in 1685. No legitimate heirs. And... James succeeds him to the throne as James II. And just as everybody feared, he begins to immediately violate the test acts. And these are the acts which regulated, in, among other things, um, Catholic involvement in public matters. He just immediately started appointing Catholics to public office and military positions and Parliament and the public were deeply disturbed by this. So from the very beginning, his reign is not off to a very good start. Um, He did give a speech in Parliament and it was kind of interesting. Parliament's takeaway is he's going to practice his faith, but he's going to follow all the rules, you know, Protestant good, Catholic bad. And James's takeaway is, can't we all just get along and live in peace, and why does it matter? So I don't think they were ever on the same page. Um, prior propaganda, I mentioned there was all this propaganda and um, supporting the anti-Catholic sentiment. Before he took the throne, there were actually pamphlets running around with a picture painting him as Queen Mary in trousers. So if you remember, the reign of Queen Mary is only a hundred and some odd years prior. So the memory of um, burning Protestants at the stake is still pretty fresh. So this doesn't sit well. Anne herself is very concerned and she lived in fear that her father would try to convert her to Catholicism. So this is actually kind of interesting. She would avoid him after he took the throne because she was afraid that he was going to come and try to convert her and I don't know if she thought that he would be too convincing or if he was just some evil Catholic and would use some kind of nefarious means but she at one point actually pretended to be pregnant to avoid him or maybe she felt like she didn't have the ability to say no to him I don't know what it was but this comes up over and over and over again she was really really concerned. Um, she was afraid of the fact that he was a Catholic, a Catholic and she was afraid that he would try to turn her into one. There's also this fear that James is going to have a male heir with his second wife and raise him as a Catholic. So his wife did become pregnant in 1687, and oh. rumors immediately spread that she was faking the pregnancy. Um, Anne resisted the rumors at first, but by the end of the pregnancy, she was spreading them as well and we talked about this a little bit in one of our episodes, but this kind of gives you an insight into her character. I got the sense that she wasn't necessarily... She was strong in her personal convictions, but she could be sort of swayed in different directions depending on which way the public wind was blowing. So when it became clear that the public is thinking that this pregnancy is fake, and either decides to support this knowing that she's going to be threatened by a baby brother or she truly did believe that her stepmother was trying to fake a pregnancy. But she went so far as to refuse to be present at the birth so as not to be called upon as a witness. And she was telling people that her stepmother wouldn't let her touch her belly and she would hide and not undress in front of her. Never mind the fact that uh, I think her sister asked her, well, did you ever do that in her previous pregnancies? And Anne said, well, no. So, you know, it's was just, just cherry-picking the supportive evidence. But when the little boy was born, they actually had 40 witnesses to the birth so that they could swear that it was truly a baby boy who was born to the queen. None of that mattered at this point. This kind of sets the fuse off and everyone's just living in fear of a Catholic on the throne. And the situation eventually became so untenable Um, that James was essentially driven out of England um, at at essentially at Parliament's invitation William of Orange who is Mary's husband invades England in November of 1688 James is determined to fight him for his throne and he left London on November 17th to go meet him and I don't know if he was gonna go fight him or discuss terms but he's accompanied by Anne's husband George the next day Anne writes to William in support knowing that George is already planning to abandon James at the earliest opportunity and then Anne and her lady Sarah Churchill fled a few days later and she arrives at Oxford to meet up with her husband in mid-December James is completely abandoned by his children and supporters and once he realizes this he flees to France and at this point parliament says well okay we can consider that he's ab- abdicated um William and Mary yes he's like he not fighting the for country. his throne <laughs> William and Mary were declared king and queen sharing the throne equally and at this point they determine that the succession is going to go after them because they don't have any children to Anne now did Mary do you know did she have the same problems as Anne conceiving is that um, she uh, the problems? only thing i saw was that there's a record that she had at least one miscarriage and apparently it was a kind of a dangerous one so the theory is that this um affected her ability to have any more children mm. um but they didn't have any children so when it comes time to determine who's going to succeed after them was a little sticky so it's determined that Anne would be in line after both William and Mary have passed so if Mary dies first William gets to keep the throne and then if William marries again and has children those children will follow Anne that's not what William wanted William wanted the throne to pass to any children he would have from a second marriage and bypass Anne and her children even though William himself has no claim to the throne but, but it William was kind of took interesting it. like we've talked about this before like ostensibly William was ruling as a team with his wife with who had the true claim to the throne but in all for all intents and purposes like he ruled England yes and I don't want to get too much into it because this is really about Anne well, But we have talked about it before yeah we yeah. have talked about it but that's not how he saw it he saw it as his crown yeah they because him he to come take he it. believed that anything that belonged to his wife became his upon marriage. Yes, because he is and following the historical line of women could not possibly have a claim in their own right and rule. So It's not even that. He just felt that her claim was his. No, but that's what I mean. Like what belongs to the woman belongs to the man and the man supersedes the woman. Yes, and Mary was fine with that. She She felt like they, because they asked her, do you want to rule on your own? And she said, no, I'm, my husband's going to do it, basically. I mean, Um, it's quite possible that she was like, hell no. (laughs) I don't want that responsibility. I think that they were just very much on the same page. And she just felt, you know, you have to remember how they were raised. They weren't, they weren't raised to be independent thinkers right. they i mean they were taught math so that they could manage their household accounts when they got married it wasn't like one day you may need to rule this kingdom and understand how the treasury operates nobody was educating them that way yeah so it's very much a product of the time But Anne actually you know took the opposite approach and I don't know if it's because she saw that and she and that didn't sit well with her where William almost succeeded in cutting her out of the the succession but when it was her turn there was never even a question. She she was the queen alone and her husband remained Prince George. So I thought that was kind of interesting um So around the time, I want to bring in Sarah Churchill. So the reason we're doing an episode on Anne is that there is a movie coming out that I think looks really good and interesting called The Favorite. And it explores the relationship with Anne and Sarah Churchill and later Sarah's cousin Abigail and their rivalry to be Anne's favorite for a very long time. Anne and Sarah were extremely close ever since Sarah joined her household when Anne got married to George. In fact, they were so close that when I talked about her, you know, writing people multiple times a day, you know, in her memoir, Sarah says being friends with Anne was exhausting because she just expected a response to every letter. She expected her to be there all the time, even though she did give her a lot of time away to be with her family. They just they were almost freakishly unhealthily close and this is the reason for the eventual rift with William and Mary so shortly after William and Mary took the throne Sarah's husband John Churchill who was later the Duke of Marlborough um, was accused of conspiring with the Jacobites who were the supporters of James and Sarah was banished from Anne's household Anne did not react well to this she was extremely angry at what she saw as poor treatment and along with this they took away her honor guard they I think decreased her allowance they basically exercised control over her kind of reminding her you're not in charge we're now in charge of you Mary felt like Anne was not subservient enough to her as queen so the sisters, you know, they had previously been close, but now that Mary is queen over Anne, it causes some tension. It culminates in the fact Anne gives birth to a baby who died immediately after birth. And when Mary went to go visit her, first of all, Mary had to be convinced to go visit her. And when she did, she just continued to fight with her over this issue of whether or not Sarah could come back to her, um, to her household. And after that they never spoke again Mm. but what's interesting about that is that at this time Anne does have a living son William Duke of Gloucester as I mentioned before he lived to the age of 11 the king and queen were very very fond of him Um, they would often visit him and she had no choice but to let him as he was likely to succeed one day she wanted to protect his place in the succession and it wasn't really in his best interest to cut him off from the king and queen so they would come and purposefully ask the nursemaid about how he was doing and just completely ignore Anne. So it was kind of a sticky situation toward the end. Mm. And unfortunately, Mary dies of smallpox in 1694. So as you can see, smallpox is raging. Sounds like around. William's a carrier. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this causes a bit of the thawing in the relations with William through their shared grief. William... Did continue to rule, as we mentioned, after Mary died. um, And he often excluded Anne from government. Um, And Anne was slightly worried that he was going to try to bar her from the succession. So she tried to play her father and William against each other. You can see at this point, she's decided she wants to be queen one day. And it's in her grasp because William is not very healthy at this point. Mary's died It's very likely that Anne is next but she's trying to secure that and she's trying to make sure that that happens. So she actually wrote to her father requesting his permission to take the throne promising him that it was only so that she could then turn around and restore him to the throne and her hope in doing this is that she can sort of neutralize him as a threat as well but he's learned by this point not to trust her and he did not give his permission. I mean, where, what's his standing at this point, though, right? He's in France. Like, yeah, he has no standing. What permission does he, he have to give, really? I mean, I think she was more looking for his blessing. blessing um, but he's not going to give it because he, he wants his throne. And he knows Anne's, if Anne becomes queen, she's not going to turn around and give him the throne. Right. Well, she wouldn't um, be able to. I mean, that's the thing. Like, he's still Catholic. Yeah. I, I, think, I think James never accepted that that was an issue. Yeah. I, I just don't know that he really understood why everybody was so concerned with that. Um, and at this point, you know, it's kind of interesting. Anne and her sister spent their whole lives as maybe eventual heirs, knowing that their father was probably going to take the throne, but not knowing if they'd be supplanted by a baby brother. And then once this Catholic issue comes out, they're the definite heirs to the throne, And then Mary takes the throne. So Anne is, talk about chomping at the bit. Anne is waiting for her turn. Yeah. And finally she gets her turn. Um, In 1702, in March, William dies. And Anne succeeds to the throne. And she's immediately very popular. And she's much admired for her public speeches. Apparently she was very good at them the people were happy to have an English queen again. Um, and what's interesting about that is that at this point, because Anne, Anne's son has died, um, she has no living heirs when she takes the throne. It's already been decided that the Hanoverians are going to succeed to the throne. And if you want a more background on that, you can see our episode, My Kingdom for a Protestant. So I'm not going to get too much into the backstory there. Some people wanted George of Hanover to take the throne immediately because he was a male. Um, but Anne considered herself up to the challenge and she would not step aside. And for some reason, even though you've got the history of Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mary, this isn't, this isn't the first time you've had a queen Some people were just really nervous about it for some reason. So Anne spent much of the beginning of her reign establishing positive comparisons to Queen Elizabeth. And they don't really, at first blush, have that much in common. But luckily for Anne, at the time, England had just become involved in the War of Spanish Succession. Um, And just briefly, what that is, is that Charles II of Spain... Ironically, another Charles II so not dying, dying without an Charles. heir. Not her uncle Charles, but he, um, the Charles II, we'll call him Carlos yeah. for ease of distinction, he dies without an heir. And the Habsburgs and Bourbons are claiming the throne. So since Elizabeth went to war with Spain, Anne's going to use this to her, her advantage because Anne is going to war with Spain. So France and Spain allied together, and the Netherlands and England and some other countries were on the side of um, the Habsburgs. And if we remember from our Ferdinand and Isabella episode, the reason both of these families can claim this is because um, Isabella's various children's marriage alliances with both Habsburgs and Bourbons. Yes. Um, But ultimately, I do believe it ended up going to the Bourbon side. So... um, was the duke of anjou gives up all claim to the french throne in exchange to be given the spanish throne but that's a very brief history of that and that's that's my cursory wikipedia uh scan when i said what's the war of spanish succession (laughs) um when she takes the throne she's mid-30s but she's so infirm at this point that she has to be carried to her coronation in a chair she's also for some reason she's determined to have another heir and she was never convinced that her childbearing days were over so when she takes the throne you might say well she's infirm she's very obese she's childless is this a good idea and Anne's like yeah it's a great idea I've been waiting for this my whole life I can certainly have another child and I am up to the task because I am just like Queen Elizabeth who never had a child Who never had a child yeah but unfortunately you couldn't uh make this like cult of the virgin queen around (laughs) and because she was married with a husband and had 17 pregnancies yes but she steps up and just to sum up her reign was only 12 years but today it's actually considered quite successful so just a few of the things that she accomplished while she was queen Um, she oversaw the acts of union which we mentioned and this was the formal joining of Scotland to England in what is now Great Britain and the reason that they did this was the Scots wanted a Stuart on the throne they wanted James and in Ireland and England when they passed the acts of succession that would make Anne and Mary the queen they had to recognize it but Scotland didn't have to recognize it so when they do this act of union it brings Scotland and England formally together and they both have to recognize the succession from here on out and that's because the Hanover's are coming in and the Scottish really didn't like that and then you also see this flourishing of a two-party system Um, they had always had political parties in the parliament, but this is where you really see it coming to the forefront. So you have the Whigs and the Tories who are battling each other constantly, Anne lean more Tory because the Tories tended to be um, supportive of the Anglican Church, and she's the head of the church, and she's an ardent supporter herself, so she's more aligned with their cause politically. And then you have the Whigs who tend to support the Protestant dissenters, who, so, you know, it's not just that we have Catholic versus Protestant. There were Protestants in England who felt that they didn't need to adhere to the tenets of the Church of England because they felt that it was too Catholic, I guess. Yeah. Because as not- we talked about with Henry, like, he didn't create a new religion. He just created a new church that didn't answer to the Pope. But its yes. rites and rituals and everything were pretty Catholic. So there's Protestants who don't want to do that. And then they also tend to lean more Republican. So Anne is really not in support of the Whigs. Um, Sarah Churchill, who we just mentioned, was an ardent Whig supporter. And this partially led to their eventual estrangement. Um, And I, I think this movie that's coming out really covers the complexities of this relationship. Although it's probably, I think, just a backdrop for... A very weird movie it looks very weird but it looks very good but I didn't go too much into this relationship because that is covered by the movie and I plan to see the movie and I would encourage everyone out there to see it and this is not sponsored by any means no and this is just so that if you want to see the movie you know a little bit of the realness that happened in the background yes (laughs) um but this partly led to their eventual estrangement because they couldn't agree on politics and Sarah really wanted Anne to get involved and support the Whigs, and Anne wouldn't do it um so, Which is a little strange because if you're saying the Whigs tended to lean more Republican, the monarchy has barely been restored. Like Anne's uncle was the first restored monarch. Why would she report? Why would she support politicians who are leaning Republican anyway? When yeah, England has just recovered I don't think it's necessarily. I don't think that maybe all of them necessarily wanted to be a republic, but they wanted to be more like a republic. But it seems... So just less and less power in the Unlikely monarch. that a monarch would support that. Absolutely. Like Sarah seems a little um, delusional. There were several reasons that they were eventually estranged, but that was a big one. And Sarah wrote a memoir and apparently just really trashed Anne. And she's actually likely responsible for the rumors that Anne was a lesbian. And those, these rumors, which is interesting because like if anybody's likely to be tied up in that, it would be Sarah. Like, like who wouldn't take, like extrapolate from rumors that Anne is a lesbian and then assume that Sarah is her lover? Yeah, I don't know. And it's funny because in that biography I was reading, both Mary and Anne would write these letters when they were young girls to their friends that were very passionate and to like modern day sensibilities you're thinking like whoa what is this but apparently back then it was just really common to express yourself that way like like this idea of courtly yeah and this idea of courtly love didn't necessarily have to be between a man and a woman you know it was like you could because it was supposed to be platonic it could also be between women and women and to a lesser extent men and men so those definitely supported this rumor but you know and again she had 17 pregnancies with her husband so it's not like it really matters it's just that at the time that was not a rumor that would have helped her um and then you know just to wrap things up um unfortunately she of poor health her health becomes poorer and poorer towards the end of her reign she couldn't even walk you know I mentioned she couldn't even walk to her own coronation but by the end of her reign she couldn't walk at all she had to be carried everywhere Um, she suffered a stroke in July 1714 on the anniversary of her son's death which Mm. maybe it was caused by that I don't know Um, and then eventually on August 1st 1714 she dies and thus ends the reign of Queen Anne and the Stuarts. And the Stuarts. That's the last of the House of Stuart. Well, the last of the House the Protestant House of Stuart. Yeah. There's the Scottish um, House of Stuart, which continues yeah. Well, no. Well no. Just James and his Well they children trying to get the throne. Right. Back. Like there's Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Jacobites and all of that. Yeah. But they never sat on the throne nope. again. Mm-mm. And we enter the Hanovers, which still continue to this day. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. You know, there was just so much I found interesting about her and there was so many interesting things in that biography. I really couldn't just narrow down one thing. I was gonna tell the story of the changeling prince. Oh yeah, that is a weird one. In more detail, but I think we had already kind of talked about it, so I didn't want to repeat ourselves. I don't know if we really did, but like every time I hear about that story, I'm just like, people... And people just like, a lack of scientific education will really just lead people down strange paths. Well, I don't even think it was that. I think it was just propaganda because at this point in time, I think Anne could have lived with the fact, you know, you have to remember, by the time her father remarried, he remarried a 15-year-old. Yeah. And... Not uncommon. By the time she's pregnant with this child, Anne and her sister are married and having children of their own. And it's one thing to be supplanted by a brother who shares your belief system. I think that would sting a little but less so than to have on top of it. He's also this Catholic religion that you're so afraid of. But I think a, a big element of it was they didn't want the competition. They were, they were starting to look at themselves as sure things. And they didn't want the competition of a baby brother because I guess the stepmother had had multiple miscarriages so they didn't at this time think she was even gonna have another baby at this point so it was kind of a surprise and then it was pretty clear it was gonna be raised Catholic because she was Catholic I, I just kind of think it's sort of you see her ambition peeking through a little bit yeah and you know it's interesting because we didn't really talk about Mary that much but Mary was very supplicate, what am I trying to say? <laughs> Very passive. And, you know, she gave in to her husband. She let him rule all of her decisions. Anne and her husband did not have that kind of marriage. And I think what you see is Anne stepping forward and actually seizing the crown for herself, whereas Mary was more interested in seizing the crown for her husband, yeah, and I think that's going to be a theme that we'll see throughout this series of episodes is, England was for a very long time a country of kings, and this idea of women ruling, like Elizabeth I is a real exception to the rule, right, where circumstances are just right for her to take the crown for herself and then keep it for through various measures, but before her and even after, the idea of a queen of England was a bizarre concept and, you know, people just really weren't prepared to accept this idea that a woman could be a ruler in her own right. And I think that speaks to the difference in personalities where Anne is a woman who decides that, no, she can be a ruler in her own right and she's going to conduct her marriage and her life to that end. Whereas Mary was perfectly happy to say, you know what? Yeah, sure. Here, give it to my husband. Yeah. Yeah it's really interesting yep she I mean she was very much a product of her times but also very much an anomaly in her times so that's Queen Anne um hopefully that was just a light introduction we're also going to do next we're going to do Queen Elizabeth but we're going to because her reign is so long we are going to focus in on Queen Elizabeth and how she relates to Mary, Queen of Scott, and we're going to do both of them speaking together. Speaking of Stuarts and speaking of movies that are coming out. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we're going to see all of the movies, and we hope you guys are too, so then we can all talk about it. But we thought, why not take the opportunity and do a little background? Yep. And then we've got more queens right. coming down the pipeline after that. Yes. Oh, and I did want to make one technical note. Um, We notice sometimes um, our episodes aren't uploading correctly on Google Play or sometimes iTunes. We do try to catch that when that happens and fix it. But if it, you know, if it's not uploading or um, you haven't seen something for a while and we haven't announced a break, just absolutely let us know and we'll try to fix it. Yes, Um, in the meantime, if we cannot... I don't know if this is the correct way to really fix it but I often have to go to third-party podcast streaming apps because I don't know why but iTunes and Google just are not up on the technology so they can be glitchy yeah, so can. we try to catch that but let us know if something's not coming through and we'll try to catch it yes as well and as but, of today um, we have an email we yes. do and it's the same as our Instagram so it's monarchastpod at gmail. MonarchastPod yep. at gmail.com yes. so shoot over those technical issues that way and feedback we love to hear from you yep. guys all right until next time right. bye Monarcast is produced by me ali and me claire and our logo is by ryan cooney If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.